came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings in news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 5th of March, 2020. We're starting each episode with a community service announcement. First of all, wash your hands very well and often as we work our way through the coronavirus crisis. Also, climate change is real and accelerating and we need to keep coal in the ground and urgently transition to renewable energy sources. See what you can do to influence your local politicians to develop planet-saving policies. In each episode, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And in today's episode, our special guest is our regular contributor, Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next month. And then he'll tell us about the return of Beetlejuice. Then, as usual, I'll give you a short news roundup. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. It's 2020 and there's so much going on. And we're into March now. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Lots of things. 2020 is going to be a very interesting year. And uh, those of you who have been up early in the morning will have seen some uh, very interesting things towards the end of February with uh, Jupiter very close to the Crescent Moon and Mars very close to M23. The excitement in the morning is going to continue. But first, I'm going to briefly talk about what's happening in the morning sky next uh, fortnight. Venus is still blazing like a beacon in the early evening sky and is visible at least an hour and a bit after sunset very well. In the coming fortnight, Venus edges towards the planet Uranus. Now, this boat looks spectacular. Length, of course, is just on the threshold of unaided eye visibility, but uh, it will be fairly low in the horizon, so you won't be able to see it except with binoculars. However, it will be very easily visible with binoculars, and in fact, Venus and Uranus will be closest to each other on the 8th and the 9th. So, field of binoculars, Venus and Uranus will be reasonably close together. Uh, Uranus will be the uh, brightest object in the same field of Venus, same ocular field. 
and uh, Uranus would move a bit over the night. So, although it'll be fairly undistinguished, you should be able to see it move slightly uh, and uh, thereby identify it then when it's close to the units have a fairly good clue of what's going on. Yep. Sadly, it won't be as close as uh, some of the other planetary alignments we have to talk about. But in this next fortnight, we're going to see most of our planetary action happening in the morning. I'm sorry, you're going to have to get up early in the morning to see the delights, but the lights they are. Uh, one of the first things that's going to happen is that towards the end of this fortnight, we'll have Mercury appearing uh, low on the uh, eastern horizon. So now what's going to happen is we're going to have all, all four bright planets uh, occurring in the morning sky, and they'll form a beautiful light in the early morning sky. Those of you who went out to see the lineups earlier on, in February, you'll have noticed that Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn are forming a nice little light, and now uh, from about the 7th onwards, we'll see the formal skies to right. We'll see Jupiter, Saturn, and Mercury. Now, Mars has left behind M22, although it will probably still just on the edge of binocular distance between them. Uh, and it's heading towards Jupiter. And over this fortnight, we'll see Mars and Jupiter edge towards each other. So, by the 15th, at the end of our fortnight, you'll be easily able to see all four, all these bright planets at least an hour before sunrise. And that will be quite spectacular. And then the lineup is joined by the moon. On the 18th, we'll have the moon and then the four bright planets. And then on the 19th, we'll have uh, a massing where you'll see both Mars and Jupiter now both together. And between, and between uh, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, you'll have the moon. This will look very spectacular. That'll just be a crescent, will it, Ian? That'll be a crescent. It'll be a, I think it's crescent, but it'll be a crescent. Yep. On the 21st, after the end of this podcast's uh, notional time, Mars and Jupiter will be less than a few weeks apart and will be very easy to see in uh, wide-field telescope objectives. And then, and at this time, uh, you'll see thin crescent moon close to Mercury. So, at the end of this week, we'll have a, a, a beautiful line-up with the moon at the top of the ladder of planets, and coming soon, we'll have another beautiful line-up with the moon at the bottom of the ladder of planets. Fantastic. Yeah, so it's all happening, but unfortunately most of it's happening in the early morning skies. Again, uh, I emphasise that you will have to get up uh, relatively early uh, for this, although, for example, the, um, the 15th, uh, which is when we have the, um, the uh, all the bright planets together, is on a Sunday, so we'll be able to get up and have to sleep in afterwards. And then the 21st, when we have... Uh, uh, Mars do the close together and and uh, Mercury and the Moon close, you'll be able to uh, do that on Saturday morning and then have a sleep in after that. Fantastic. Do you have a tangent for us for this episode, Ian? Yes, I do, but I'm going to correct that, Mar- that Mercury and the Moon will be close together on the 22nd. 
Yep. Uh, and Jubilee will be closed together on the 21st. Mercury and the Moon will be closed together on the 22nd. So you'll see that beautiful lighter, uh, evening lighter on the 22nd. So I have us back two tangents. Tangent brings us back to Beetlejuice. Yep. Now, over the last um, two podcasts, I've been talking almost exclusively in my tangent about Beetlejuice. The first was following its uh, fading. The next was the prediction that Beetlejuice would start to brighten again. And this time, the predictions have proved accurately accurate, and people have been, been reporting that Beetlejuice is brightening again. It not, hasn't brightened by much, but people with good eyesight uh, and uh, people measuring it photometrically uh, have been able to detect uh, an upswing. You know, if you remember, the hypothesis was that they were getting three of the periodic pulsations in Beetlejuice's brightness occurring together, and so you're having an unusually deep minimum, and so then they would expect that it would brighten again. So it looks like that prediction has come true. Unfortunately, in a lot of the mainstream media, we've seen stories about how the, the astronomers have been looking for Beetlejuice to go supernova and how uh, <laughs> it was all their fault with had all this hype around Beetlejuice for supernova and were they silly? And this is basically completely and utterly incorrect. From the very first, all the astronomers were, uh, were suggesting that this is very unlikely to be a harbinger of a supernova. Uh, we do know that uh, Beetlejuice is that towards the end of its life. We don't expect it to go supernova for at least 100,000 years, possibly a billion years. It's still worth hanging around for. It's still worth hanging around. I'd like to be here in 100,000 years' time to watch uh, <laughs> the astronomers who have been pointing out that people use it don't like to explode. Astronomers who are pointing out the most likely hypothesis was the coincidence of the three periods of pulsation in people juice's brightness. But the astronomers have been uh, looking carefully at people juice to see what's going on. And so this whole thing about, oh, oh this is the astronomers talking about uh, Beetlejuice exploding is completely and utterly wrong. And I don't know where they get the idea from. They look up a couple of tweets they saw some enthusiastic outers saying, oh, it'd be really good to see Beetlejuice explode and then extrapolate out to uh, all astronomers. Did they not see any of the astronomers' tweets? Did they not talk to any astronomers? If they'd even looked at the tweets, they would see a lot of chatter about exactly what was going on, what the results were coming out. And a, a beautiful example of this is a tweet, tweet that came out shortly after the publication on the archive of observations about Beetlejuice as cooling. So that one of the things that could have happened with Beetlejuice, uh, which I've talked about before, is that Beetlejuice could be cooling because it's uh, having uh, Beetlejuice uh, like our sun has sunspots, but the sunspots on these massive old stars are enormous. And yep. what might be happening is you get these some giant sunspots which are basically star dinner and uh, and cooler. Another idea is that uh, because these uh, stars are unstable, they often puff off parts of their uh, outer atmosphere which cool down and produce dust. Um, typically titanium dioxide and uh, things like that. Yep. The 
paper that only was recently been published on archive and this is subject to the the uh, illustrated, uh which was extensively shared yep. was about observations of beetle juice looking at just this point. Now you can take the temperature of bead giants by looking at how bright their titanium dioxide and uh, and it turns out that uh, using this method to take the temperature of beetle juice it hasn't cooled very much. It cooled around about uh, 50 uh, K, which is you know, in terms of super giants, that's virtually nothing. Yep. And so there's no evidence that what's happening is you've got these massive sunspots spots causing cooling. But what they did find was evidence of dust. And they did this very, both cases they did this very cleverly. They've uh, followed uh, a compared observation of Beatles use now with observation instrument a couple of years ago, and they're also looking at simultaneously, simultaneous uh, observation of other red giant stars to see if the changes they're seeing in Beetlejuice are very different from the changes that of the ongoing uh, evolution of yeah. other red giant stars. So they have negative controls for the changes for Beetlejuice, which is really quite important. But what they did find is evidence of, of dust. So the dust that's bedded up by even juice blasting off its outer layers tends to be what's called grey in that it's absorbed with multiple uh, wavelengths. And so they found that even juice was now uh, surrounded by this mantle of grey dust, which fits in with the images that were released in uh, the end of 2019. You may remember we talked about this last time there was an image of a beetle juice. Uh, uh, full disk resolution taken at the beginning of 2019, showing uh, a bit of uh, variation over the surface, but the one taken at the end of 2019 shows that most of our big juice has been except for one small region that's still bright. And this is consistent with the idea that big juice puffed off some of the outer atmosphere and that. Our atmosphere has cooled and formed large grain uh, dust particles, um, and, and this is what is causing the uh, dimming of Beetlejuice as the dust cloud begins You'll see Beetlejuice begin to arrive in, in brightness. Yep. Cool. This comes back to what I was saying before. This is all out there. It's not just uh, astronomers talking to themselves. This is in uh, tweet threads. If, if any journalist had even briefly looked at the tweet threads, they would have seen all this activity going on. They would have seen this paper and would not have that stupid headline. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, now at the opposite end, you may have heard of Earth's mini moon and been reported that Earth has a, a new moon. Euphemously known as 2020 CD8. Now, it, this is a, an actual moon in the sense that it can't be orbiting Earth, but it's unlikely to be orbiting Earth for very long. And now, this is an example, again, not only of something that's very interesting, but also of how this was reported in the media to a variety of channels, such as the uh, Conversation, NASA Press Release, and things like that where 
the situation was explained in general public terms, was explained very well. Now, it turns out that there are quite a few small asteroids that um, orbit the sun in orbits that are very similar to that of Earth. And uh, some of these have been titled moons, even though they don't orbit the Earth, but they're orbiting more or less in pace with the Earth. Yep. But occasionally, some of these actually get captured by Earth in Earth orbit. And uh, 2020 CD8 is not the first one. You know, there was uh, one a little while ago, uh, that was 2006 RH120. I don't remember the name, but I do remember when, uh, when, when it that turned up. And, uh, it was uh, captured, uh, made four orbital loop, uh, loops around the Earth, and then uh, was uh, lost to the gravity of the sun and is uh, happily orbiting the sun without being without uh, being perturbed by Earth too much at the moment. So, but what happens is because these the little chunks of rock are so close in Earth in, to Earth's orbit, occasionally they will come close enough that it will be picked up by Earth's gravity and uh, pushed into an orbit around Earth. Now these orbits are stable, and if you look at a diagram of the orbit of 2020 CD3, uh, it looks more like a basket uh, than uh, a stable orbit. The moon orbits uh, in a uh, ellipse around Earth, uh, and it, that uh, orbit is a little bit variable, but it stays within a, a fairly narrow range, whereas uh, the moon, it, it looks like someone doing a rapid alert basket. Um, so eventually it will be lost and move away. It may be on its last orbit already, but it's really quite dim and uh, very hard to uh, pick up for uh, most amateurs. Although amateurs are really uh, good, uh, telescopes might be able to uh, pick it up and add to the observation uh, of this. Uh, it also brings up an interesting question. What do you call these objects? Now, I've referred to it as a mini-moon, but mini-moon is currently being used to describe an apogee moon. And also uh, coming up, of course, is uh, we've got a nice perigee moon where uh, we have a full moon and perigee are uh, separate by only, um, by only 12 hours. So we have a, have a nice big moon, and that's actually on the 10th, which is in our, uh, in the field of this, uh, of, uh, this podcast, which I completely uh, neglected to mention. So we've got a perigee moon coming up. It's not as good as next month's perigee moon, but it's still a nice little perigee moon, which has been called, um, the perigee moons uh, are being called super moons. Yep. And uh, it originally started off with um, astrologers uh, being silly. And then it got picked up by a strong outreach, people trying to get people excited about uh, the sky, which it does, but the perigee moons that are a, a nice thing to watch, but it's really quite difficult to see how, how big they are compared to other moons. So it require, it, you know, people could be potentially disappointed by going up and looking at a perigee moon, but it doesn't look different. But nonetheless, and we've called the perigee moon supermoons, and also now called the apogee moon minimum. 
So uh, the apogee is perigees, of course, when um, the moon is close to the Earth, and apogee is when the moon is furthest from the Earth. So obviously, full moon on a perigee is going to look much bigger than a full moon at the on an apogee. Yep. Uh, the, the problem uh, with us perfect uh, humans is by the, by the six or seven months it takes to go from perigee to apogee, most people forget what the moon has looked like, so they really can't tell it. Fantastic, Ian. While we're talking about this mini-moon, that's just a moon that, or an asteroid that's come within the Earth's gravitational field. So it's just meandered in and it's going to meander out again. It's not yeah. like when we do a slingshot. No, no, it's not like when we do a slingshot when we deliberately use the gravity of Earth to sling a um, spacecraft towards the sun in the case of... Um, the Mercury and Venus uh, probes or out towards the solar system or the, or, uh, the outer solar space of both Mars, Jupiter and some of the asteroid and comet missions. Yep. But again, it brings up what we call four weeks then. The mean moon is taken, a very moon. And so far, the best designation is a, a small orbiting object that is not a, uh, the Delta car. Very good. Well, because in this particular case, the rock is about the size of a small car. So any car, any car-shaped object, <laughs> which is not the, not the uh, Tesla. <laughs> Very good. I must tell Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm sure he will be chuffed. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Once again, a fantastic report. Sadly, it's mostly in the morning, but if you're a morning owl, it's a good time to get up and have a look around. And again, really nice things are happening during the weekend, so you can have a get up, have a look around and go and have a sleep in. Yes, well, I did get up about 5.30, 6 o'clock a couple of mornings ago. And that lineup of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars is truly fantastic. It's wonderful. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again, Ian. And our motto is step outside and look up at it. Look up at it indeed. Thanks, Ian. Good night, mate. Cheers, mate. Here is the Astrophys News. This is from ikra.org forward slash kaboom. First up, applause to the ikra web designer who created that URL. Headline, February 28, 2020. Astronomers detect biggest explosion in the history of the universe. Scientists studying a distant galaxy cluster have discovered the biggest explosion seen in the universe since the Big Bang. The blast came from a supermassive black hole at the centre of a galaxy 390 million light-years away in the Ophiuchus galaxy cluster. It released five times more energy than the previous record holder. Professor Melanie Johnson-Hollett from the Curtin University node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, said the event was extraordinarily energetic. 
We've seen outbursts in the centre of galaxies before, but this one is really, really massive, she said, and we don't know why it's so big. But it happened very slowly, like an explosion in slow motion that took place over hundreds of millions of years. It was so powerful, it punched a cavity in the cluster plasma, the superhot gas surrounding the black hole. Lead author of the study, Dr. Simona Giancinducci from the Naval Research Laboratory in the United States, said the blast was similar to the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, which ripped the top off the mountain. The difference is that you could fit 15 Milky Way galaxies in a row into this crater that this eruption punched into the cluster's hot gas, she said. Professor Johnson Hollett said the cavity in the cluster plasma had been seen previously with X-ray telescopes, but scientists initially dismissed the idea that it could have been caused by an energetic outburst because it would have been too big. People were sceptical because of the size of the outburst, she said, but it really is that. The universe is a weird place. The researchers only realised what they'd discovered when they looked at the Ophiuchus galaxy cluster with radio telescopes. The radio data fit inside the X-rays like a hand in a glove, said co-author Dr. Maxim Markovich from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre. This is the clincher that tells us an eruption of unprecedented size occurred here. The discovery was made using four telescopes, NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory, ESA's XMM-Newton, the Murchison Wide Field Array, the MWA, in Western Australia, and the giant meter wave radio telescope, the GMRT, in India. Professor Johnson Hollett, who's director of the MWA and an expert in galaxy clusters, Liken the finding to discovering the first dinosaur bones. It's a bit like archaeology, she said. We've been given the tools to dig deeper with low-frequency radio telescopes, so we should be able to find more outbursts like this now. The finding underscores the importance of studying the universe at different wavelengths, Professor Johnson Hollett said. Going back and doing multi-wavelength study has really made the difference here, she said. Professor Johnson Hollett said the finding is likely to be the first of many. We made this discovery with phase one of the MWA when the telescope had 2048 antennas pointing towards the sky, she said. We're soon going to be gathering observations with 4096 antennas which should be 10 times more sensitive. I think that's pretty exciting. And there's more good news. We'll be interviewing Melanie for the next episode of Astrophys and find out about her career, this discovery, her other research, and the role of the MWA in the development of the SKA. Next up, the FRB mystery intensifies. We've been reporting on FRBs since 2016 and interviewed leading FRB researchers along the way, starting with Dr. Manisha Kaleb in episode 34. 
and her work using the Malonglo Synthesis Telescope since then, many new and old instruments like Fast, Ovro, Chime, Greenbank, Arecibo, ASCAP and Parks have all successfully joined in the search for FRBs and last year we saw the Chime instrument in Canada come online and immediately scored some interesting hits. The discovery of sporadic repeaters in archival Arecibo data has intensified the puzzle, ruling out cataclysmic events as the sole generator of FRBs. Now, Chime researchers have thrown another spanner in the works for theoretical astrophysicists to ponder over, with the detection of a 16-day repeater from a regular repeating FRB. It goes off every 16.35 days like a very reliable alarm clock with no snooze button. The paper is on the archive preprint server at tinyurl.com forward slash FRB repeater, all lowercase, all one word. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio 1.